0: So I, I love lifting weights, I love going heavy, I'm a like low low rep kind of guy, just put as heavy as you can go and just that's, I, I'm get loud, I just love it and I did that last Sunday. Uh, I, on Sunday afternoons I love going to the gym just because I'm tired here after being, you know, preaching and so I get after it on Sunday afternoons and I was doing heavy deadlifts because I'm stupid and... Uh, last Sunday, I was almost all the way up, and in my back, I felt pop, 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 and dropped it, took two steps, hit the floor. I didn't think I was going to be able to get back up. Didn't could hardly walk the rest of the day. Monday morning, I, this is as far as I could, like, lean up, and I'm looking like I'm 90 years old and got a hunchback, and... I uh, went to the chiropractor, got an x-ray, it's, it's a bulging disc, I got a bulging disc in my back, so all week long I've just had a ton of pain, been at the chiropractor an hour a day, went to a spine doctor, got some good meds, it's, it's been an excruciatingly painful week, and so this is like the first time like I've been actually able to, like, to stand up. And I don't know, I made it through the first gathering. We'll see how this one goes, if I'm able to stand up for, I got a stool here just in case I got to sit down, but my left leg's still numb. It's just a mess. But it got me thinking, like, how did this happen? How did this back injury happen? And of course it happens because I was being attacked by Satan, is how It happens. No, Well, obviously not. It's happened because I'm stupid, and I'm 42 years old and should never lift, try to lift, deadlift that much. But it's so interesting. Some of us want to blame Satan for everything. Satan made me lose my car keys. Satan made my car die. Satan made me late to work. And the reality is you can't blame Satan for everything. Like, you losing your car keys, that's your fault. You being late to work, that's your fault. My back, that's my fault. Can't blame Satan for everything. But we can blame a lot on him. And that's what we've been talking about in this series. Regardless of who you are, where you're at in your spiritual journey, what your church background is, if you would call yourself a follower of Christ or not, as we look at the world, as we look at our lives, we know something just isn't right. We know things aren't as they should be. Most of us have had the thought, like, it just seems like there's something against me. And according to Jesus, according to the writers of Scripture, there is. And the Apostle Paul said it this way when writing to the church, the community of Christ followers in the city of Ephesus. He said, finally, as in, I've saved this for last because this is so important. Finally, be strong in who? The Lord, in Jesus, and in his mighty power, not your own. Put on the full armor of God so you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. And Paul's saying there's a powerful, evil, deceptive enemy at work in the world. The enemy That enemy is a devil whose name is... Is Satan, and it goes on. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood; it's not against him, not against her, not against them, not even against ourselves, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms, according to the writers of Scripture. Jesus came to forgive us for our violation of sin that keeps us separated from Holy Creator God both in this life and in the next. Jesus came to redeem, restore, reconcile our broken relationship with our Heavenly Father. That we created. Jesus came to usher in God's love, joy, hope, peace, salvation, healing, righteousness, goodness, provision, justice, mercy, grace, ultimately, God's kingdom. Jesus came to fill all creation with God's glory. Jesus came to save you and give you life to the full, peace to the full, joy to the full, hope to the full. But we have an enemy whose sole motivation is to steal, kill, and destroy all of that. Satan is your, my, Jesus' enemy who fights to oppose God whoever he can. He fights to prevent the work of Jesus in the world and in your life. He fights to advance evil and hopelessness and injustice and hatred. He fights to fill creation with despair and darkness and disease. Disease. He fights to deceive and destroy you. We look around and we know something just isn't right. It seems like there's something against us all the time. And as weird, as unbelievable as it sounds, according to Jesus, according to the writers of Scripture, you have an enemy who is against you and who is attacking you. Paul's saying we are in a battle daily, so we must daily prepare for battle. We are in the midst of a battle every single day—a battle not against him, her, them, or even ourselves, but against, uh, but an unseen battle against an enemy who fights with the forces of hell to destroy everything and everyone God is for, everything and everyone God loves, everything God wants to do in the world and in you, everything and everyone Jesus came for, Jesus died for, and Jesus rose from the grave for. We are in a battle daily, so we must daily prepare for battle. The question is: is how do we prepare? And Paul goes on to tell us, Therefore put on the full armor of God so that when, not if, it will happen, when the day of evil comes, when the enemy attacks, you may be able to stand your ground and after you have done everything, to stand. See, you and I, we don't get to choose this battle. It's here and it's coming. You are and you will be attacked To stand firm and not be devoured by our enemy, we have to daily prepare to fight, but we can't fight with our own strength. And the good news is, is we don't have to try to. Through his death and resurrection, Jesus has already won this battle, so all we need to do to stand firm is to put on Jesus and his mighty power by putting on the full armor of God. And starting in verse 14, what Paul does is he lists six pieces of the armor of God. And he uses the analogy of a Roman soldier in doing this because in the first century, the, the who he is writing to, in their mind when they pictured a warrior going into battle, they pictured a Roman soldier. So he uses the pieces of a Roman soldier's armor to describe these pieces of the armor of God. And so we're doing throughout this series is going through all six of these pieces, talking about what each piece is, why it's important, and how to put it on daily. My goal by the end of this series, by the way, is that we all prepare for battle daily by putting on the armor of God daily from this point forward. Because if you do, if you put the armor of God on daily every day from this point forward, the enemy, he's got no chance in your life. He's going to be disarmed in your life again and again and again. And you're going to begin to stand firm and won't back down. You'll begin to experience God and his presence and his power in your life right in the midst of this battle. So Paul starts. Stand firm then. With then, Here's the first piece of armor. Belt of truth buckled around your waist. And we looked at that piece last week. If you missed last week's sermon, go back and watch it. Here's the second piece that we're talking about today. With the breastplate of righteousness in place. Now a Roman soldier's breastplate kind of looked like this. It was an extremely important part of uh, of, their, of their armor. It was metal cast of a human torso, so it made you look like it had abs. I need me one of these, by the way, to wear around all the time. As you can see, this breastplate, it protected you know, the upper body, the vital organs, but mostly it protected the heart, right? Because if you get a spear or you get an arrow into the heart, you immediately die if your heart starts, stops beating. Well, today, this obviously doesn't exist. Modern day, this is what it would be. You know, every soldier... You know, who goes into battle today wears one of these bulletproof vests. And they're inside of each of these vests, there's a, there's a chest plate to protect, obviously, the organs, but ultimately to protect the heart from getting a bullet to the heart because, once again, you get it to the bullet to the heart and the heart stops beating, you immediately die. So the heart's, you know, very important. So, breastplate, breastplate today, that'd be a bulletproof vest. Now, this imagery that Paul is using is to essentially say, say, stand firm in this battle. Stand firm in this battle. You need to daily prepare to protect your heart from the enemy's attacks. Now, Paul is not talking about our physical hearts here. When the writers of scripture talk about our heart, what they're referring to is the core of our being. And by the way, the condition of our hearts are so vitally important because our hearts are the center of everything we feel, think, are, and do. And that's why a thousand or so years before Paul wrote this letter to the church in Ephesus, King Solomon, who was an Israelite king and by the way was known as, famously known as the wisest person to ever lived at that time, said this. He said, above all else. Basically mean above everything else you do. As your number one priority above all else, guard your hearts. And here's why. For everything you do flows from it. Above all else, guard your heart because everything you are, everything you feel, everything God wants for you, everything you do, both good and bad, flows from your heart. Above all else, guard your heart because your ability to have peace with yourself, peace with others, and peace with God flows from it. Above all else, guard your heart because, as another English translation of the Hebrew scripture says, from it flows the springs of life, which means your ability to experience true life and hope and peace and joy flows from your heart. Solomon is saying, if you want to know God, have a relationship with him, experience his life-giving presence in your life, if you want to be protected by the enemy, then protect your heart at all costs above everything else. Fast forward a thousand years, according to Paul, the way we protect our hearts is by putting on righteousness as a breastplate. Which brings up the question, what is righteousness? Righteousness. Well, in short, righteousness is a right standing with God. But you can't understand righteousness, you can't understand this definition without talking about an uncomfortable, ugly word that none of us like to talk about first. And that word is sin. Now, let's be honest. The word sin is so uncomfortable, it's so heavy that many of us, maybe you, have pretty much abandoned this word altogether. Because if we say we've sinned, well, that makes us sinners. And many of us have come to believe that being branded as a sinner leaves us condemned with no hope. B- because of what many of you have been told or what many of you have heard, many of you have concluded not only does being a sinner condemn me to hell, but God actually looks forward to sending me there as a sinner. So if I say I've sinned, I'm a toad, I'm toast, it's over. There's no hope for me. The other reason that many of us have abandoned this word sin is because saying I'm a sinner is like looking in the mirror and going There's the problem. And none of us want to admit that we might be the problem. But we know we aren't perfect. So in our effort to resolve the tension to describe our less than perfect actions and our less than perfect behaviors, we've substituted a word that's easier for us to bear. You've probably done this. We've replaced sin with mistake. And you know, like if I went around the room right now and I said, hey, everyone who, who's made a mistake in their marriage, raise their hand. People raise their Everyone who's made a mistake financially, raise your hand. People, I made a, everyone who's made a mistake sexually, raise your, hand, raise your hand. Everyone who's made a mistake financially, raise your hand. People, they have no sweat. Everyone would be like, yep, not perfect, made mistakes in all those areas, raise your hand. But if all of a sudden I substituted sin for it, super hesitant. Everyone who has sinned sexually, raise your hand. Everyone who's sinned financially, raise your hand. Everyone who sinned morally, raise your hand. Everyone who sinned in your marriage, raise your hand. Everyone would be like, Mm-mm. The front row would be like, is anyone else raising their hand? I want to make sure before I put mine up. I mean, there's something so heavy and ugly and condemning about the word sin, we've decided to replace it with the word mistake. And just to let you know, I think we've made a big mistake by substituting the term mistake for the term sin because by doing so, we can't understand what Paul's saying. We can't understand what righteousness is. We can't understand why Jesus came and Jesus died. We can't understand what we need to protect our heart from. We can't understand how our enemy is attacking us. We can't understand how to stand firm. you got to know, when, we're talking, when, when, when talking about God in relation to humanity, the writers of Scripture clearly communicate three things. The first thing they communicate is God created humanity in his image. According to the writers of scripture, there's one holy creator God whom at some point in the past created everything. And the climax of his creation was humanity whom he created in his perfect, holy, righteous image. Secondly, in the beginning, humanity lived in perfect harmony with God. And third, humanity's choice to sin messed it all up. God created a perfect world and he also created humanity with free will. Free will means that you and I have the ability to say yes or no to God. Sometime early on in in, in history, humanity sinned by saying no to God. And when sin entered the world at that time, everything got messed up. And nothing, you, me, the rest of the world, nothing has been the way that God created it to be ever since. According to the writers of scripture, the cost of sin is death. Which means, and you hear me say it all the time, sin doesn't make us bad. Sin makes us dead. According to the writers of Scripture, it started off so good and we messed it up. According to the writers of Scripture, humanity's choice to sin infected this world. It corrupted it with pain and agony and death. According to the writers of Scripture, sin has infected all of mankind. We all are, in fact, sinners, Now, because of that, it should come as no surprise that Jesus talked about sin a lot. But he did so in a very interesting way. In a way that many of us have, you know, a different way that many of us have been communicated to about it. When Jesus talked about sin, he talked about it in the context of relationship. And the point that Jesus continually made was sin is such a violation against God, it breaks relationship with him. Sin is such a violation against holy creator God. It's such a violation against his created intent for us, which is to be holy and righteous, like he is holy and righteous. It's such a violation against his created will for us, which, by the way, is to glorify him, that it breaks relationship with him both in this life and in the next. Again, that's why I say all the time, sin does not make us bad. Sin makes us dead. Because of our sin... We are not righteous, which means we do not have a right standing with God. And there's not enough, not enough right we can do to earn it. There's not enough we can do to right the bigness of our wrong, to right the bigness of our sin. We're completely helpless. Our violation of sin against Holy Creator God is too big to overcome by any of our efforts. You and I owe a debt to God that you and I cannot pay back. And because of that, you would assume that Jesus' purpose in talking about sin was to condemn, but it wasn't. Jesus had a much different purpose. Jesus' purpose in talking about sin sin was not condemnation, but restoration. Jesus unapologetically called us sinners. Not for the purpose of condemnation, but for the purpose of restoration, for the purpose of reconciliation, I mean, none of us want to admit we're sinners, but recognizing it is actually a means to an end, an amazing transforming end you cannot get in any other way. Because, and this is so important, Jesus knew, until we admit we're sinners, we'll never seek the thing we need most from God to restore our relationship with God. Which, according to Jesus, is forgiveness. We're completely helpless, but because of God's great love for you and God's great love for me, he did what we could for us, what we could not do for ourselves. He sent his son, Jesus, to offer salvation, restoration, forgiveness. Jesus lived the perfect, holy, righteous life that you and I did not and could not live. And then he died in our place, a sinner's place, as the sinless sacrifice to atone for our sins. And then he rose from the grave three days later to prove that he alone can forgive sins, to prove that he alone could offer eternal life. And he proved that because he defeated death. That's why Paul can write this with such confidence. But now, apart from the law, referring to the 600 plus laws and commands in the Hebrew scriptures that are referred to as the Mosaic law. Now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness, this, this right standing with God which results in a restored relationship with God. This righteousness is given, how? Through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe bottom line is this. A right standing with God starts with faith in Jesus. Faith in who Jesus is and what he did for you to restore your relationship with Holy Creator God. The relationship that your sin and my sin broke with him. Now you've got to understand there's two layers to righteousness. The first layer is called imputed righteousness. When we put our faith in Jesus by asking him to be the forgiver of our sins, our Savior and the leader of our life, our Lord, our God, he imputes, he, he ascribes onto us, he credits to us his righteousness, which results in a restored relationship with God. We can't do anything to earn righteousness. Jesus earned it for us, which means a right standing with God starts with faith in Jesus. For those of you who have never put your faith in Jesus, never asked Jesus to be the forgiver of your sins and leader of your life, you've got to know that Satan is doing everything he can to be against you and attack you and stop you from doing that. Satan's end game is to keep you separated from your heavenly father for eternity. So if he can keep you from putting your faith in Jesus, he is already one. So if you've never put your faith in Jesus, today I'm going to give you an opportunity to do that before we go. Today is a day to defeat your enemy by putting on Jesus' righteousness through faith in him. By asking him to be the forgiver of your sins and the leader of your life. And if something, for whatever reason, you've never done it and you're, you're stirring in you that you should do that. Don't let Satan beat you today. Take that step today and have your eternity forever changed because of what Jesus did for you. Now, that's imputed righteousness. Righteousness. A righteousness we all need for forgiveness, for salvation, and that only comes through faith in Jesus. But after we put our faith in Jesus, there's a second layer to righteousness. And the second layer is one that we all actively have a part in. It's called imparted righteousness. This is actually what Paul's referring to when he says to put on the breastplate of righteousness. Because Paul is writing to the church. He's writing to people who have already put their faith in Jesus. We can't earn right standing with God, but after we put our faith in him, in faith in Jesus, we must actively choose to live in right standing with God. We must actively choose to be righteous. Not for our salvation... That happened the moment that we put our faith in Jesus. But in order to continue to live in right standing with God by protecting our hearts. Living in righteousness is how we grow in a relationship with Jesus. And growing in a relationship with Jesus is how we experience him. And how the springs of life that only he can give. The springs of joy. The springs of peace. The springs of hope. Can flow from our hearts. And Satan... Wants to steal, kill, and destroy all of that. He wants to destroy the springs of life that only God can give flowing in our hearts. So he attacks and attacks and attacks. And one of the primary ways that Satan attacks us is by tempting us to sin. (laughs) See, Satan knows so much more about sin than you do. Satan knows that, first, sin hurts others. Sin destroys relationships, it wrecks marriages, it divides churches and families. Secondly, Satan knows that sin hurts our relationship with God. Sin present, pre- prevents us as followers of Christ from growing in our relationship with Jesus and thus from experiencing and being in God's presence. Not because God removes himself from us when we sin, but because when we choose to sin, we're choosing to turn our back on him and walk away from him towards someone or something else. Satan also knows that sin ultimately hurts us and destroys our hearts. Sin, it generates guilt, shame, regret. It leads, us, it leads to addiction. It destroys emotional and mental well-being. Sin prevents us from being transformed into everything God's created us to be and thus experiencing the life that only can be produced in our hearts from growing in a relationship with Jesus. Once again, sin does not make you bad. It makes you freaking Dead. Satan knows that sin hurts ourselves, it hurts others, it hurts our relationship with God. So he attacks and attacks and attacks our hearts by tempting and tempting and tempting us to sin. So Paul says, protect your heart by putting on the breastplate of righteousness daily. Well, how do we put this on? How do we put on righteousness as a breastplate daily? And it happens in two words. And it's the same way these two words have been since the beginning of time. These two words are trust and obey. Trust and obey. We put on the breastplate of righteousness daily by daily choosing to trust and obey all that God's commanded. All that God asks of us. We put on the breastplate of righteousness daily by daily choosing to trust and obey. Not because God wants to keep something from us, but because of what he has for us when we do. We put on the breastplate of righteousness daily by daily choosing to trust and obey because our heavenly father loves us and wants what's best for us and wants to keep our enemy from harming us. We put on the breastplate of righteousness daily by daily choosing to trust and obey so that we protect our hearts from the enemy devouring and destroying our hearts. Interesting thing is many of us believe all that. Yet most of us, most of us, me included, still have a really hard time trusting and obeying God in every area of our lives. Why do you have a hard time trusting and obeying God in every area of your life? Why do I? What keeps us, more personally, what keeps you from trusting and obeying God in all things? And here's the reality. It's the same thing that has kept people who say they love and are devoted to God from doing it for thousands of years. I've talked about this many times before, but... 2,000 years before Jesus walked the earth, as part of God's redemptive plan, he promised the Hebrew people who became known as the Israelites, who became known as the Jews, that, he would be, that, that they would be his people and he would be their God. And part of that promise was that he would give them their own land, referred to as the promised land. The problem was for 400 years, the Israelites found themselves as slaves in Egypt. Finally, after 400 years, God sent a man named Moses to deliver them from slavery and lead them to the promised land. After Moses led them out of slavery, after he led them out of Egypt through a series of what can only be described as supernatural events, God gave the Israelites those 600 plus laws and commands for how to live as his chosen people that are now referred to as the Mosaic law. If you were to narrow down what God was trying to communicate through all those laws and commands, through the Mosaic law, it was those two words. Trust and obey. Trust and obey. And this came with a promise to them. If you trust and obey, I will bless you in such a way that you will know that I'm the one true God and a watching world will know that you are the one true God's people. But if you don't, there's a consequence. If you don't, I will discipline you severely because I love you. Now, their faith after they were led out of Egypt, man, it started off strong. But it didn't take long for them not To trust and obey. So instead of taking them immediately to the promised land, God led them to the nastiest, worst place on the earth. He led them to the desert. Where every day they didn't know what they would eat. They didn't know how they would drink. They didn't know how they would survive. They were utterly helpless and dependent on God for everything, which was the whole point Of God leading them there. God led them to the desert and kept them there for 40 years to teach them to trust him alone. To teach them that he could be trusted to provide for their every need. And he would if they obeyed him. Well, after 40 years in the desert, they finally learned to trust and obey. After 40 years in the desert, they developed unwavering faith in God. And now they were finally ready to enter the promised land. Things started off really great for the Israelites after they settled in the promised land. Started off so good. But once again, it didn't take long for them not to trust and obey. And so it happened for the next 400 years. The Israelites went through this same cycle over and over and over and over again. The cycle was they sinned by not trusting and obeying. Secondly, God disciplined them through military conquests and opposition by neighboring countries. Third, they repented and cried out to God for forgiveness. Fourth, God delivered them. Fifth, they experienced peace. Now, after they experienced that peace, you'd think they'd have finally learned their lesson, but they didn't. Inevitably, they sinned again by not trusting and obeying, and that cycle started all over, and it went like this for 400 years. The question is, what kept them from... What what kept them from trusting and obeying God? What kept them from doing that? And we discover that answer in the last verse of the Old Testament book of Judges. And here's the answer. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. They knew what was right to God. But they fell into the temptation to do what was right in their own eyes. Eyes And doing what's right in our own eyes instead of trusting and obeying what, uh, what, what, what is right to God, that is sin. That is the opposite of righteousness. One of the primary ways that Satan has always and Satan continues to tempt us to sin is by tempting us to do what is right in our own eyes. And it sounds a little like this of what you've heard in your head before that you thought maybe was just you. If it feels good, it's right. If I want it, it's right. As long as we love each other, it's right. As long as it doesn't hurt anybody else, it's right. If they don't agree with me, they're wrong because I'm right. As long as it helps me financially, it's right. As long as they don't find out, It's right. It's okay because it's just one time. It's just on the weekends. It's, It's just spring break. Listen, I'm only young once, so it's right. I'm lonely, so it's right. What's right for me is right for me. What's right for you is right for you. And as long as it feels right for me, it's right. And it's a freaking lie. And all of us have fallen to it again and again and again and again and again. Satan is deceiving us to do what's right in our own eyes, and our hearts and our lives are being devoured. Marriages aren't better, relationships aren't healthier. Depression and anxiety are on the rise. We're emotionally not better. We're mentally not better. We're not experiencing more life and hope and peace and joy. And yet, I'm right. I'm right. I'm right. I'm right. I'm right in my own eyes. (laughs) We've been deceived. When we don't put on the breastplate of righteousness by trusting and obeying God, we leave our hearts vulnerable to the enemy's attacks. And sooner or later, he will overtake, he will deceive, and he will destroy you. And for many of us, he already is because you're giving in to the temptation to do what is right in your own eyes. That's why James, the brother of Jesus, so he would know, James instructed us in this way. Submit yourselves then to God. He's saying submit to God financially, sexually, relationally, morally, mentally, in every area of your life, in every decision, in every circumstance. Submit to God means to trust and obey in God in everything and in every way and every area of your life. It's saying, God, your ways are better than mine. I will trust and obey what's right according to you instead of what's right in my own eyes. That's how we put on the breastplate of righteousness and check out what James says next resist the devil and he will flee from you. He's saying submitting yourself to God, trusting and obeying God is how you resist the devil. When we put on the breastplate of right, when we put the breastplate of righteousness on Satan can't get to our hearts. So, what will happen is he will flee from us to go find the next fool who he can take out their heart. Satan can't take you out when you're putting on the breastplate of righteousness by trusting, obeying God in every situation and every circumstance. But we all sin still, don't we? So what happens then? What happens with those times when I don't trust and obey and I sin? Am I defeated? Is it over? Has Satan won? Should I just give up? And the answer is no. And that's the reason why James writes what he does next. He says, come near to God and he will come near to you. My and your natural inclination when we sin is to rationalize it, excuse it, downplay it, or hide. And all those things, what do they do? They keep us from coming near to God when we sin. So James is going, listen, when you give it to the temptation to sin, don't rationalize it, don't excuse it, don't downplay it by calling it a mistake, and don't hide. Instead, come near to God by confessing it to him and then choosing to trust and obey. By the way, that's called repentance. Repentance is, I was following something, and I'm turning back toward following you, God. God, I realize that I have sinned, and I'm confessing. I'm going to draw near to you. I'm going to come near to you, turn toward you, and choose to trust and obey you. That's how we come near to God, and the promise is that when we do that, he will come near to us. Unfortunately, many of us don't do that when we sin. Instead, what do we do? We just keep doing what's right in our own eyes. And Satan keeps winning. Satan keeps devouring. And Satan keeps destroying. We're in a battle daily, so we must daily prepare for battle. One of the ways we daily prepare to stand firm in this battle is to protect our hearts from the enemy attacks by daily putting on the breastplate of righteousness. The big idea is this. We protect our hearts daily by daily choosing to trust and obey. If we don't want to be a war casualty, we must put on the breastplate of righteousness. We protect our hearts daily by daily choosing to trust and obey. The reality is this is very hard to do for all of us. Because we're so conditioned by, you know, to the enemies tempting us to do what's right in our own eyes that we don't even realize that that temptation is happening. So the question is, how do I know if I'm trusting and obeying? How do I know? How do I know if I'm trusting and obeying? How do I practically put on the breastplate of righteousness in this situation, in this circumstance, in this, in, in this temptation? Well, I could give you a thousand next steps, but you probably won't remember any of those. And so instead I want to give you one question that's been really effective and really practical for me. And here's the question. Will this glorify God? It's a very simple question. Will this glorify God? Will doing this glorify God? What will glorify God right now? Is this action Is this response, is this situation, is this activity, is this thought, is this relationship, is this decision, is this talk, is this interaction glorifying God? Am I glorifying God by doing this? This question, you know what it does? It helps take our eyes off ourself and what's right to us and instead put our eyes on him and help discern what's right according to him. And let me tell you the beauty of this question. You can't skirt around it. You can't skirt around it. You start BSing around like this is glorifying to God. Come on, man. You can't skirt around this question. You can skirt around the question all day long of what's right in your own eyes, but you can't skirt skirt around this question. And you want to do what's glorifying to God because that's what's right for you. Because God is for you. We put on the breastplate of righteousness by determining what will glorify him and then Trust and obey, trust and obey, trust and obey. So here's my question for all of us. In what way do you need to trust and obey today? Because I guarantee there's a way. I guarantee there's a way. In what way do you need to trust and obey today? Maybe it's with something you realize you're doing that's right In your own eyes. Maybe it's with something you've been convicted of in the past and you've chosen not to trust and obey. Maybe it's sexually. Maybe it's morally. Maybe it's financially. Maybe it's relationally. Maybe it's something at work. Maybe it's something at home. Maybe it's when you're something by yourself. I don't know what way you need to trust and obey, but I bet you already do. It's that thing right now that you're really uncomfortable with, that you're really mad about, that I didn't even say. But you've been saying it in your mind already. And making excuses already to do what's right in your own eyes. Protect your heart. Protect your heart. Put on the breastplate. Trust and obey. Trust and obey. Trust and obey. I want to close with two final thoughts. God's job is to transform our hearts. Our job is to protect it. Our job is to protect it. It's not God's job. That's our job. You will be transformed more from this point forward, you will be transformed either more into who God's created you to be or further from who God's created you to be. From this point forward, we all will. This affects that. Us being more transformed to who God's created to be, that's the only way the springs of life flow from our heart. If you are not guarding your heart by putting on the breastplate of righteousness, what's going to happen is Satan will take a stronghold in your heart. And when you allow him to do that, here's what's going to happen. Instead of God transforming you, Satan's going to begin to transform how you feel, how you think, who you think you are, and what you do. And you do not want him transforming your heart. Because his sole purpose is to steal, kill, and destroy you. So protect your heart by putting on the breastplate of righteousness daily. Here's the last thing I want to say before we go. You've got to choose your heart. You've got to choose your heart. The cost of righteousness may be high from time to time, but the cost of sin, always higher. Righteousness is hard up front, but much easier down the road. Sin is much easier up front, but much harder down the road. It's hard to choose to trust and obey. It's hard to choose to trust and obey, but it's also hard to go through a divorce. It's also hard to be filled with guilt. It's also hard to experience depression, it's also hard to lose all hope. It's also hard to let the, image, to let the enemy, enemy ravage your heart. So you got to choose your heart, because it's all hard. So choose what hard you want to go through: the heart of trust and obey, or the heart of letting Satan have an attack on your life. Because it's all hard. So choose it. We protect our hearts daily. By choosing to trust and obey. Daily choosing to trust and obey. Let me pray for us. Dear Lord, um, I pray all of us, Jesus, who say that we're followers of you, we walked out of here and we choose to put on this breastplate every day. We choose every day. Say, God, what's going to glorify you? And then we trust and obey, trust and obey, trust and obey. I pray that through that, God, you do a transforming work in our heart and the springs of life flow. From our hearts. Jesus, for every person that's never put their faith in you, I ask that uh, right now they choose to do that. That either in this room or at home, wherever they're at, they choose to say, Jesus, I I realize that my the bigness of my sin and what it's done, it's separated me from my heavenly Father. And I need forgiveness. I need a savior. Jesus, I believe you are that savior because of your death and resurrection. So right now I'm asking you to be my savior. I'm asking you to be the forgiver of my sins. And Jesus, I want to make you the Lord of my life. I want to ask you to be the leader of my life. I want to ask you to be my God. I want to follow you. Jesus, I pray that right now as people are praying that and putting their faith in you, they sense the righteousness of Christ being imputed unto them. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.